This is a Clark University podcast. RFU contains grown-up themes and occasional coarse language when they get carried away. Please take care while listening. You want to dance the mask, you must service the composer. Hi, screen professors. This is Alex McGregor, and I'm a senior at Clark University. Recommended for you this week is the film Tar from 2022, made in Germany and directed by Todd Field. The film stars Kate Blanchett, and I'm recommending this film for you because there are so many different ways to interpret it, from being a cancel culture parable to an outright horror film. Kate Blanchett as Lydia Tarr instantaneously became a stylistic and possibly cultural icon with her immersive performance. The film has one of my favorite endings of the entire year. I think the acting, screenplay, cinematography, and themes all demand discussion from the audience. This. This. This is recommended for you. For you. For you. A podcast where Clark University Screen Studies professors watch and discuss films suggested by the. 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 Community! Welcome to RFU. I'm Rock Sommer. I'm Soren Sorensen. I'm Hugh Mannon with an accent over the U. <laughs> <laughs> and we're here to discuss Todd Field's 2022 film, Tar. Tar. <laughs> Let's get serious. Let's get real. Is, you guys, this is a drama. Let's Can we treat it with the, yeah. with the respect it, it deserves? It absolutely needs to be treated in a solemn and pensive way. Tar is a 2022 U.S.-German co-production written and directed by Todd Field and starring Kate Blanchett as the eponymous Lydia Tarr, a world-renowned orchestra conductor operating at a yo-yo ma level of popular fame. Basically, this is a story of Lydia Tarr's slow and complicated downfall, which at the same time gives viewers an inside glimpse into the hierarchies and politics of the classical musical world. Lydia begins the film apparently held in high esteem by everyone, conducting the Berlin Philharmonic, promoting an upcoming recording and an autobiographical book, and over the course of two hours ends her career in infamy, separated from her wife and child, disturbed by strange nightmares and auditory phenomena, literally canceled on social media when a Juilliard lecture is recorded and posted in a re-edited version to make her already offensive words against a student even more damning. A key figure in the film is Lydia's former protege, Krista Taylor, whose face is never seen on screen, although we see shots of the back of her head as she apparently stalks Lydia. When Krista commits suicide, Lydia is sued by Krista's family, which brings down the whole house of cards, exposing Lydia as a serial abuser of young fellows at the institute where she is employed. Two other crucial characters in the film are Lydia's personal assistant, Francesca, who she ultimately fires, and her daughter, Petra, who she defends against a school bully. The second act ends when Lydia appears to be going out to conduct one final performance. We see her prepping in the hallway, but what follows is a surreal scene of Lydia running out on stage, tackling and pummeling the colleague who was hired as her replacement to conduct. In the film's bizarre non sequitur ending, Lydia moves to the Philippines. It it sounds like I'm making this up, but in the film's bizarre uh, and non sequitur ending, Lydia moves to the Philippines where she conducts a youth orchestra playing a video game score for an audience of cosplayers. She seems to have an epiphany there, which I think we should save and discuss later. So what would be a good inroad here? I kind of thought my initial thought was that this is a film. If you, if you really want to get into the thick of the politics of this, this is a film that kind of proves that the Bechdel test isn't really that useful because this is a film that absolutely 100% and in numerous instances passes the Bechdel test, but every other character, every other female character besides Lydia is sort of cardboard and hollow and doesn't really have a lot of depth. 
Um, that might be one thing to talk about, but there are many things to talk about. This is a heavy, dramatic picture. I have mixed feelings about it. Go. <laughs> so I, I am always kind of fascinated by these movies that are that are about music at this really high level or, or at any level that that um, st- that sort of strive for authenticity uh, on, on the one hand. But then there's this kind of really complicated, you know, psychological thriller, almost, um, you know, kind of dream dreamscape stuff on the other. So there's 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 a lot of realism in this or the, or the, the, the filmmakers are trying to portray some realism here, but then there's also this breakdown, this kind of psychological breakdown that's happening at the same time. Um, and then this stalking that's happening as well. And you don't really know what's going on. Um, but I, yeah, I, 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 I would, would have loved to watch this with a conductor and, or, or, you know, with a, with, with a, a principal violinist for a Philharmonic or something like that to really have an idea of, you know, was this handled well or was this not handled well? Because it, it seems like, and to bring it back to the Oscars, this seems like a, to me, a really pretty amazing performance. And I don't really know how that's arguable. Like, I, you know, I, you know, this character feels really lived in. The choices make sense. The idiosyncrasies are consistent. Like all, all of these things are kind of firing on all cylinders. But to Hugh's point, many of the other characters feel completely underdeveloped or non-existent. And I think that's true of a lot of Academy Award nominated performances for best actor or actress. Um, not that, not, again, that's not the only thing that we're here to talk about, but that's sort of what spurred this idea of, of watching these films is because they're, they're, they're celebrated and, and in this case, Oscar nominated. Field has been nominated six times, three for this film, and uh, once for best picture for In the Bedroom, and then best adapted screenplay for In the Bedroom and Little Children, 2001, 2006, respectively. I kind of wished I liked it more. Um, I loved the beginning of it. I loved the setup of it. I loved the long monologues. It was a little vague to me. I don't know. Rocks. um yeah i mean i think this is like a remarkable performance and like and uh an example of like form meeting content by which i mean like the body (laughs) and mind of kate blanchett this is just a dream role for us for her because it is this like in-depth character study of a character who to most of us makes no sense and who we are being invited to interrogate and puzzle through and see the like contradictions, the hypocrisy, the ironies, and try to puzzle out how that in fact works for her. Mm. And her acting style, which is to say one that I don't think is, you know, I think one of the cliche ways to compliment an actor is to say they disappear in the role and Blanchett for me in her most remarkable performances we are watching Kate Blanchett play <laughs> Lydia Tarr we're sure. watching Kate Blanchett play Carol yeah and, mm. and when it lines up with like a plot like this that is about the performing arts it it's exquisite for me but like I think I feel similarly to you too in that that is being heavily juxtaposed against the very confusing script. Yeah. I guess I actually hadn't thought about the flatness of all the other characters to me. Yeah. I mean, it reveals like the limits of the Bechdel test in that, like, like there's something Mm. about those sorts of movies where we lift up the performance of a singular actor. Right. Right. 
and in, and there's something about the scripting and the direction that like almost deliberately minimizes everyone around them to hold that spotlight yeah, yeah, harder. Yeah. But I think it would just would be a different movie. If it was an ensemble, yeah. And if we actually privileged her relationships. I yeah, don't, big right. picture, disagree with Hugh, your characterization of the plot. But I also think the sexual nature of her predatory and abusive behavior, I think it's very interesting to use a word that's boring. <laughs> it's um, Just say fascinating. It's I'm very fascinating. Fascinated. Yeah, it's much better. I'm very fascinated <laughs> by the fact that it's a relatively like desexualized represent, right? Like it's not playing it for titillation. Sure. Yeah. And I actually think in, in doing so, it's getting at what is at the heart of many such dynamics, which is distilling that like Lydia Tarr isn't doing this actually necessarily out of sexual desire. You know, this isn't a story about someone who who fell head over heels with someone they shouldn't have because mm. they were working under them. You know, like that does happen. Yeah. But that maybe is a different thing. <laughs> to me, at least, there's a difference between those moments where you fall in love or like fall in lust and I don't know, let your guard down, make mistakes vert with in in a scenario professional scenario, say. But then like this is like we're what we're seeing is in, it's not that. It's not like a oops. <laughs> caught with my guard down moment it's actually like a pattern that is motivated more by power and control than yeah. sexual desire i mean the fact that you you brought up the word pattern which is used all the time to describe predatory behavior but also um routine which is like yeah this isn't particularly titillating or 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 sexual it's it's kind of like this is what i do and and in in a, in a lot of ways this film portrays the routine of somebody at the very upper echelons of of this art form which none of us get any any kind of peek at not not that we ask for it i like that you mentioned that um kate blanchett is always kind of she's always present in her roles this dovetails really well with the discussion of what a conductor does for an orchestra now again this is not to do with the ideology of the film necessarily but it really is she really is kind of born to play this character i mean it's really perfect you can't imagine somebody else in it you know so there are these brilliant moments and brilliant flashes but yeah there is some confusion going on about yeah her 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 motivations or, or whether she has any you know there's whether yeah. there's a human being in there right <laughs> well let me i, I want to speak to both those things in turn and and they're really both extremely important but they actually go in somewhat different directions so sure in the first instance well let's go to the 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 question of sexual impropriety in the film so one thing i would point out is that in place of scenes that reveal actual sexual activity or sort of uh, even uh, suggestive sexual activity. In place of that, what we actually get is uh, Lydia scrolling through emails, looking at all the instances in which she failed to recommend Krista, right? So mm -hmm. it's like, the this is a really dumb way to say this, but the porn of this film is mm -hmm. email porn. It's sort of, yeah. we're, we're looking at the power, the power differential itself, right? So she's got the power to make and break careers through single emails to people, right? Mm -hmm. She sends an email to a colleague at a different orchestra or whatever and Krista is is done yeah her you life know, changes right? her life yeah. changes radically right based on these emails and so that's where that's that's what's playing out so I think yeah rocks to your point it, this is a film that's clearly about power uh, and and the film uh, scrupulously avoids any sort of actual sexual content all of that is inferred it's inferred by other people it's inferred by us I For think sure. it's yeah. probably actually right but at the same time like what's being played out here is a, is a power differential but like to this question of acting, you know, like when I first started watching this, I was like, 
wow, that so there's that scene uh, at the beginning, very beginning of the film, and it's Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker interviewing Lydia Tarr on stage. What's so odd about that to me is as I watched it, I kind of thought, wow, Kate Blanchett is overacting the hell out of this. She's gesticulating, <laughs> and it's this long take, right? Massively long take with all this stuff to memorize. I can't even imagine how much she memorized, right, to get this whole uh, discourse down with the interviewer. And it feels natural on his side and very unnatural on her side. And at first I thought, boy, this is just terrible. Like, what's going on mm. here? I expected more. But then I came to realize that that is the role. So it's one of those cla- right? amazingly yeah. complex things where we get an actor acting like a character who's acting. Acting. It's yeah. like, holy yes. cow. Lydia, could we talk a little bit about uh, translation? Because mm-hmm. I think there are still people who think of the conductor as a kind of human metronome. Well, yeah, that's 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 partly true. Yeah, but but so, into keeping time, it's 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 no small thing. But I suspect there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, well, I, I would hope so. Yes, but time is the thing. Uh-huh. Time is is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. Now, my left hand it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means the time stops. And when we see her actually immersed in the role later on, that's not it at all. Like so, so all this weird, formalized, rehearsed gesticulation goes away, and she's a totally different person. And this carries over into her quote-unquote personal life, and it ties to me to like this like power... Uh, profession sexual question mark thing because I noticed every single time Lydia Tarr touches another person with the exception of the one really disturbing scene where she's asked to help the woman who's fallen out of her chair with that exception when it's the early admirer when it's her wife even when it's her daughter and the foot in the bed later when it's the assistant mm-hmm. who's who needs comfort around the suicide, it is all very deliberate. Like it is acting too. So mm-hmm. there's the acting. I am the great woman composer acting, yeah, yeah. and then there's also like, oh, I have to act like a spouse, or I have to act like a friend. I have to like act like I care, and so it's it's just really noticeable because she's so isolated physically so often and then all her scenes are nearly scenes of conflict and they're usually verbal but then there's these select moments where she reaches out and hugs her wife or she reaches out and touches someone's arm Mm. and you like almost see the wheels turning of Lydia Tarr being like okay now I have to human (laughs) yeah yeah I I know it's a tough film to criticize I mean I've discussed it with a few people and it's a tough film to say well, you know, this didn't work for me because it's vague. And so the, the response is going to be, well, that's the point, you know, like that, like the, yeah. the moral ambiguity of it is the whole, that's the whole ball game or something. So in, in a way, like the, the, the vagaries of the script or something like that, it's like, well, the, the, and they're, they're meticulous, right? They're, it's not vague. It's actually designed that way or something. Um, but I also think the film isn't really judging the character at all. Um, and I think, I think in a certain way, what? I, I really, I really don't. I think, I think you, you we talked about um, um, Lydia Tarr pursuing um, and yet it, we, we also see her pursued quite a bit. Um, she is in positions sure. where you, she is, she's called back at the, when this, the, the young admirer in the beginning of the film, she's walking away and she says, can I text you? 
Yeah. Like she doesn't, she didn't initiate that. That, that is, and, and again, if, whether we, whether we, we think that the touch is uncomfortable or whether, of course there's a power dynamic, there's going to be a power dynamic, no matter who she, who she sleeps with, right. Or who she hooks up with. There are power dynamics everywhere. No, yes. Yes. There's, right. and there's certainly <laughs> one here. This is a, this is a, like a godlike Titan in the classical music world. Again, a world that I don't know much about though. It is sort of fascinating. Um, but, but, yeah. <laughs> or interesting, um, I, but, yeah. but it's, but I don't, I don't think it's really, I don't think it's really so cut and dry. Is is she to to blame here? She's being pursued by many of these people. I would say the stalker fans are a very different thing than your protege. Well, I'm I'm not talking necessarily about Francesca, um, the 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 assistant. I'm I'm talking the protege, right? But like the so the so if you're a celebrity, then like the difference between you and everyone, other than perhaps other celebrities, is always great. But Mm. like I think sleeping with and hurting the feeling, like just being a shitty. sexual partner to like a fan is Mm. a has very different stakes than being (laughs) a shitty mentor that involves like sex oh yeah or a shitty spouse agreed i don't know that the film is actually being judgmental of her in any of those categories i think this film is is attempting at least to be a satire and i don't think i think it's taking lydia tar as its uh like immediate target but i Mm -hmm. think it's trying to tackle a broader issue as well as the culture. So it's like, it's sort of like that film we watched about filmmaking. Official competition? Yeah, I don't think, I think this film both knows and understands and appreciates classical music in a way that I don't. But I also think it's, uh, I I guess I'm trying, it's almost like watching, like listen, trying to read a foreign language for me because I'm not of this world Mm. by any stretch. But I feel like I guess I like feel like I'm sensing some incisions into the classical musical culture sure. too, yeah. Yeah. including that start. I saw this in the theater and then I rewatched it again this morning. Yeah, I was almost laughing. The interview at first, I was like, yeah. I was bored or annoyed because like it's so much explication too. Yeah, and um, but then as it kept going, I was like, oh. This is hilarious. Like we're supposed to be. Oh, it's, these people yeah. are ridiculous. I, yeah. I, I agree. I agree with you. I, I I agree with you to to a to a great extent, actually. And in fact, the second time I watched that scene in particular, um, the idea that the the length of the introduction is 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 comedic. I mean, it's yeah. and in fact, and in fact, he begins. Uh, Todd Field begins the film with the entire credits, right? So you're right. you're sitting there. Well, I right. mean, but this is again. This I think he's sort of doing this self-serious thing that, that you see in classical music now. But the, I guess where I where I might take a different tack is that I think that he could have made this film about tennis. Like, he could have made the film about anything. I mean, yeah. it's the power dynamics or the power dynamics or the power dynamics. It could have been about, about academia. It could have been about... There are different places this could have been, although it is sort of about academia in, in a sense, because she is... There is a very pivotal scene early on where, where she's teaching a, a... You know, guest teaching a class, which is sort of one of the moments that sets everything off. But I, I almost don't know that it's skewering classical music but or just skewering power dynamics no i think it's both of those yeah things. yeah you're right yeah. here's why it can't be a tennis film because tennis is about like you know it's about a bunch of different things that constitute tennis but like what this world of classical music is about isn't like music or discipline or tradition it's about judgment like people judging other people so we see these scenes where somebody's behind the curtain so we can't see who they are physically mm. and they play and then a decision is made by the powers that be in this organization as to who goes forward and so judgment is kind of in every corner of the classical music world and i think that's sort of what's being satirized right so because these these judgments are so arcane like who like who in reality who in the realm of the the poor old woman 
who falls off the toilet seat in her apartment. Who in that? So this film, it's it's like Mulholland Drive. Like there's a real reality, and then there's this fantasy reality within yeah. the world of classical music. So who in real reality cares a shit about? these sorts of judgments that are being passed in these strange rooms in the Berlin Philharmonic. And yeah. I think like that, that the film in that sense is being highly judgmental. So it's not just yeah. she, she as an emblem of that world, but also that world per se. Right. So that there's something about this world that I, is in, innately dysfunctional. I just think that character exists everywhere. Yes. It's about classical music, but yes, it could easily be about tennis. I honestly feel that way. I think judge judgments everywhere. And I think uh, uh, film festivals blind judge their, their en entries. Um, you know, uh, studio art, oftentimes there are blind judged, um, gallery exhibitions and things like that. So it's, it's classical music has this air of being, you know, this, this upper echelon of something like, but, but it, when, when the rubber meets the road, it's very similar to other uh, pursuits, I think. Yeah. All I'm saying is like either John McEnroe beats Bjorn Borg or Bjorn Borg beats John McEnroe. Right? So I understand. That's not, there's yeah, no judgment yeah. there. But but know? but an equal number of people give a shit about it, which is not yeah. very many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. Right. Or you or you're required to play each other in a mock tournament to decide the seating order of your chess team. And despite <laughs> you beating the boys, they put you in the last place. That uh, never happened to anybody. Never happened to anyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, anyways, no, I don't think classical music is the primary target. I, I think we're we're just differing, disagreeing on like slight uh, shades. Um, yeah. I, I do think it's taking on a culture of um, predatory mentorship in like elite uh, competitive spaces. But but I think I think it's less judgmental of the character than you do. Like I think it's I oh. think it's I think it's skewering the the idea of it. But it's also saying it's like the weather. I mean, it it is it is going to happen. It happens. It's not saying this is an this is an anomalous event, right? I mean, no, but I think it's good. There are good mentors and there are bad mentors. Yeah, like she's a, yeah. she's a bad mentor, and the film absolutely tells you this, right? Mm. Yes, it, even to the point that this epiphany happens at the end of the film. Sure. One way that I would put this, the joke version is: this film is not tar on tar. Like this film, which is the name of her forthcoming biography, her autobiography. autobiography. <laughs> this film is like decidedly like against her philosophy, right? If this whole conflict that really explodes in the Juilliard classroom is her belief that the, you know, the art and the artist should be separated, that we should evaluate and celebrate music based on its merit not on the biography of the person behind it, not on their identitarian categories. This film is also first and foremost interested in Tar as a person. So it's like not taking the same approach, right? This isn't about Lydia Tar as composer. It is about Lydia Tar as person. So what it's looking to is her behavior and how it actually doesn't match that philosophy. There are moments where she says things that strike me as, as true. The problem with enrolling yourself as an ultrasonic epistemic dissident is that if Bach's talent can be reduced to his gender, birth, country, religion, sexuality, and so on, then so can yours. Now, someday, Max, when you go out into the world and you guest conduct for a major or minor orchestra, you may notice that the players have more than light bulbs and music on their stands. They will also have been handed rating sheets the purpose of which is to rate you. Now, what kind of criteria would you hope that they would use to do this? That is like a fair point. But I think what this film is not doing that would that I would understand some people's reticences is it's not judging her for being a lesbian or for being a woman. 
Um, it is judging her for being a predator, by which I mean, that's not like an identity. It's a set of behaviors and actions that include not judging musicians based on their merit. Yeah. The best cellist does not get the position. Mm. Everything that she does, even if not as egregious as driving a young woman to suicide, is horrendous because it doesn't match the creative philosophy she's espousing. So it's a it's a hypocrisy of sorts. And I mean, I think the film is at great pains to point out the hypocrisy. So for instance, when some little girl in her daughter's class is harassing her or treating her badly at school, and maybe like even physically, Lydia goes to the school and confronts this girl directly. But the thing is, it's how she confronts her. So she confronts her in the terms that a sexual abuser would manipulate the, the child who's being abused and says, no one will believe you. So she's doing the right thing, but she's doing it through the absolute wrong route in that case. And she can't see the, the contradiction there. She, mm. And she constantly can't see the hypocrisy and the contradiction. We see it. We're supposed to see it. Complicated protagonists or complicated, you know, anti-heroes or anti-villains or whatever we want to call her. Um, they they all are replete with contradictions. So I guess the, the I guess the hypocrisy is 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 there. I mean, it's there for a reason. And we're not supposed to say, well, this person's all evil or all good. There's also this relationship with the neighbor where there's this there are these these pitches playing. There's this electronic beeping happening somewhere in her building, and she's starting to kind of take it on as part of the, her comp the composition that she's going into, which I guess is, is sort of the B story of the screenplay, which is her writing. Like, so her conducting is sort of the A story and the, and the, and the orchestra and all that stuff. But she's also composing a, a, a symphony and she's being bothered in her pied a terre or whatever the, by this electronic noise that's happening. And we find out what that is later in the film. But, um, but that reminded me a lot of the tenant and to a lesser extent repulsion and Rosemary's baby. I thought there were like little, little kind of nods to, to Polanski and like what your neighbors can do to you and what the ex, what the outside can do to an individual. So that's a great segue into something that I found absolutely fascinating about this film because I sympathize in the sense that, you know, some certain people are sensitive to smells. I'm very sensitive to low-key disruptive noises. And so just to give you some examples of this, I've never Id identified with a character so strongly as when she's driving her electric car, which is silent, right? And it's all insulated from the outside world and you can't hear anything but what's inside the car. And she looks over at the vent and the vent is rattling. The symptom of her psychological degradation over the course of the film is that noises start invading her musical world. And it's very heavy handed <laughs> yeah. because it comes down to things like her waking up in the middle of the night to a ticking and discovering weirdly that in a perfectly lit little cabinet, there's a metronome like <laughs> clicking back and forth. So yeah. some of this stuff, some at the level of plot, some of this is a little dumb. Like, like I don't even understand that. Like who did that? <laughs> Why is that happening? Right. Yeah. Those little acoustical, noisy invasions of her space are also a form of judgment, right? So it's a, it's a way of saying, like, so she wakes up and she's super irritated by the fact that the refrigerator is making a certain type of noise. Kind of what that tells you is she's just overly sensitive. You've got neighbors whose lives are horrendous, right? Yeah. So yeah. you've got this, this uh, woman who's caring <laughs> for her mother and her mother falls off the what I'm going to call it toilet chair, because I don't know what you call it, yeah. and is on the floor and needs help to get up. And she goes over to pick her up, which is the generous and kind neighborly thing to do, but then immediately goes back to her own apartment and like washes all that filth <laughs> off herself. Yeah, the, the well, unwashed, right? Yeah. So yeah. so it's like there there is this outside world, and the most, uh, and I'll just stop with this, but the most, the most heavy-handed example of this is when she's out jogging, 
and she hears, and I don't know how else to describe it. She hears someone screaming mm-hmm. as though as though possibly there is an assault going on off screen, very specifically a rape, right? So this is what we yeah. sort of perceive to be happening through the screaming. And at the end of that scene, she simply can't find the source of the screaming and just leaves. And she's ignoring all kinds of traumatic events, including the ones that she caused, right? I mean, it's, just, yes, yeah. th- th- there is this kind of, um, you know, the, her, her sheltered life or her gilded, you know, uh, palace and like everybody else kind of thing. And even even those things kind of invade her electric car or her, her uh, uh, pied terre or whatever, yeah. How you characterized her a few minutes ago, Soren, like, mm. Like she is a an anti-hero. She is not a likable person with the exception of that you have Kate Blanchett's huge charisma, which is doing important work. That's not incidental. Mm-hmm. But like I guess the question of the movie is to, is to what extent we're being led to believe she is being haunted by her her misdeeds. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like a Christmas Carol or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. Cuz she also she also has those nightmares and I think the most sensual or sexual imagery, there is like at least one dream with with Krista Taylor Mm -hmm. that's kind of erotic. But I think there's also these moments about her relationship with her own mentor where she's either explicitly pushing back on his dismissiveness of such concerns Mm. or more passively reacting to what he says. So he tells a story about someone and she realizes that he's lumping more things together than she would. Mm -hmm. So for her, there's a distinction between what I think she calls sexual indiscretion or Mm -hmm. sexual impropriety, which I would say itself includes a wide range of of things. It's it's, it's euphemistic, right? Yeah. Yeah, Sexual impropriety could include so many things. But for her, the distinction between sexual impropriety and literal Nazism is one worthy of at least uh, questioning. Sure. And then to this theme of noise sensitivity, that same mentor mentions how Schopenhauer like said that it was a measure of intelligence, sure. <laughs> your sensitivity to noise. And she <laughs> says, but didn't he later push a woman down the stairs? And then her mentor jokes, well, the you know, what is that relevant? Yeah, and right. she sort of like, and he tells it as a joke, like, is that relevant to our assertion yeah. of his music and his knowledge? Sure. Um, and she sort of laughs along, but I, I read it as like a reticent, awkward laugh. Yeah. Right? Like, like, like she's, so- she's changing a little bit or she's sort of starting yeah. to realize that she's having guilt about some of this stuff. Yeah. My, you know, immediate kind of um, identification with this character at the beginning came from the, the passion that she has for what she's doing and it, which is pretty clear. Yes. It's, there, it's exaggerated. And yes, she's, she's sort of not, not particularly, um, you know, warm and fuzzy as a character, but, um, but to listen to her talk about how important this music is, not only for the New Yorker in front of a big audience, but in that lecture hall where she clearly is mistreating this student. Um, and, and though I agreed with, I vehemently agreed with a lot of what she was saying, I, I wouldn't have said it in that way. We are living in a moment where people are really quick to condemn whoever's closest to them about whatever they're saying, whatever the, per- the perceived ideas might be about a thing. And I think Lydia Tarr has a pretty good foundation about about defending the idea that, yeah, Bach is a is an important composer or Beethoven is an is important composer or Verez is an important composer, right? And, and yes, they all had, you know, peccadillos and all these kinds of things that we would rather have them be virtuous. Sit. This is all filigree, right? I mean, it could be a first-year piano student. Or Schroeder playing for Lucy. 
or Glenn Gould, for that matter. <laughs> now, it's not until it changes, you get inside it, that you hear what it really is. It's a question. And an answer. Which begs another question. There's a humility in Bach. He's not pretending he's certain about anything. Because he knows that it's always the question that involves the listener. It's never the answer, right? Yeah. Now, the big question for you is what do you think, Max? <sighs> you play really well. But nowadays, white male cis composers, just not my thing. Don't be so eager to be offended. I think the film is really squarely in the category of like every human being is fa is fallible. I mean, that's sort of what makes the character to me relatable. And and I don't. So it's not just that it's Kate Blanchett. It's that she loves something more than herself, and she's sublimating. She talks about sublimation in it. Um, and yes, we and that and that's a contradiction with how she comports herself um, um, in, in her private life and in her dealings with with underlings and 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 you know people that she's interested in pursuing sexually. But she does have this love for this thing. If she didn't, she wouldn't. Her career wouldn't be where it is. So I, I don't well, know. I don't. Know. <laughs> Here's the segue you need to get us to a conclusion. The the two key words that you just said, love. Which there's this question of what does Lydia Tarr love, and there's the que the the word underling. So Petra. Mm -hmm. So Lydia loves her daughter. No question, mm -hmm. right? And this is the catalyst that leads us to what I think is the film's greatest failure, <laughs> which is to say. <laughs> That the way this plays out, so we get to an ending that feels to me like it's supposed to be uplifting and hopeful for Lydia. The very, very end. I'm talking about final shot. What? Granted, her career has completely fallen apart, but I'm talking about there's a little uptick of hope in the last shot. And the reason that this happens, so far as I can tell, and you can tell me if I'm completely off base on this. But the reason that this happens is she undergoes an epiphany when she reaches the Philippines. And the epiphany is that she goes, she she asks the, uh, I, I don't know that you'd call him, what, what's the word for the person who sits concierge. in the- Concierge. He's not exactly a concierge. He's just like a desk <laughs> desk guy at a cheap hotel. So she's in the Philippines to make money, to, to just exist. And her whole career in the US and in Berlin is completely shot at that point. So she's you know visiting, checking out the Philippines. She's there because some people want her to conduct something. We don't know what. And in the in-between- the final shot where we see her actually conducting a, a certain type of orchestra, she she says to the concierge desk guy, I'd like to get a massage. So he gives her a written down address. She goes there. She walks into the place. It seems very fancy. And she realizes once she gets to the end of the hallway and is asked to choose one of many women who have numbers on them, which one she wants, she realizes that this is a brothel immediately turns, runs out, and throws up. And I think that what we're supposed to take from this is, and these are young women, right, in the brothel, very clearly, and one of them's looking at her. I think we're supposed to take from that that she somehow sees her own daughter in the figure of the sex worker, and that's what causes this moment of shock where she runs out and throws up. And so somehow at the end of all this, we get this cheaply won moment 
where a woman who's got a very bad track record of of uh, interactions with underlings sees the light is going to turn it around and is going to turn it around. And I found that like, <laughs> yeah. not good um, yeah. because I just don't think people turn it around. Frankly, people are who they are. Like the thesis was just replaced by everybody's worthy of redemption kind of thing. It was just. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't. It didn't land for you. It didn't land for me in that in in the way that I think it wanted to. And so, in yeah. in that sense, like I think the film is amazing at the level of performance, but at the level of plot, I I question an awful lot of it. I agree with that, Rox. You seem completely unconvinced by this. <laughs> I didn't think of the daughter in the end at all. No, I didn't either. I just thought of her life. I just thought she was sort of looking back at her past. Could be. I guess I would just read it like like she is getting some sort of reflection back of the power she has been given in the past and her abuse of it and that it has in fact led her here. I don't think that the film is giving a full note of redemption or understanding she has done horrible things and doing such horrible things has led to her downfall. Mm. And I think what she's always wanted is power and control. And there's something about this film starting with a Mel Brooks EGOT joke and ending with cosplay like at first i took it as making fun of this elitist sphere of classical music and then using that exact elitism to punch lydia tar <laughs> again so i read the, the final note i, I you're like that final shot and i was just thinking of all the cosplayers and how that for this character we know to have maybe been such a fall. For me, this film is so decidedly against Tar that this moment feels like it's trying to help her, but it actually doesn't. I think we're going to have a complex answer to this question. I know I have one. The question is, should we? Would, isn't it would we? Would we? Should we? Could we? Would we RFU? Should we? Shall we? Would we RFU? <laughs> would we? Woulda, coulda, shoulda. Woody, could he? Who wants to take a hack at it? So I think, yeah, I, would, I think I would recommend it. I, I'm mystified at the rapturous reception of it, to tell you the truth. Um, I, I think that the performance is excellent and perfect. Yeah, I would recommend it. It's complicated. Yeah, I, I would recommend <laughs> it. Um, however, I don't think it's anywhere near, at the level of plot, anywhere near as profound as a film with an accent in the title needs to be. And I, I think it's, I think it's, it wants to be, I say this a lot. It wants to be a Michael Haneke film. It wants to be mm. the piano teacher. It's very much like the piano teacher, but that's a much more profound and kind of extreme film. And I think that um, it it's the kind of film that I think you could watch more productively in the context of some of the things that we've talked about. So obviously you can watch it for the performance and it's just a winner, a hundred percent. This is a fabulous performance, but if you're going to, I think if you're really going to love this, you got to lower your expectations a bit. This is a Hollywood psychological thriller movie, right? It's, it's really that it's not, it's not more profound than that. It's exactly I wish it that was more of a thriller than it, than it, than it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah too, yeah. too. And yeah. I would put this, so I would say, yes, I would recommend you watch it and watch it in the context of some films that kind of situate it. Watch it with Black Swan, the film about classical dance, piano teacher, Michael Haneke's film, watch it with Whiplash, a film about like an abusive <laughs> teacher, watch it with uh, Suspiria. To me, this film, yeah. like if, if it, if it resembles anything, it's like, Suspiria without the horror or something. If you want, like a, that. if you want a really complex um, a film to pair it with, how about Woody Allen's Bullets Over Broadway? Oh yeah, that'll, that'll really mess things up for you. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. then you'll have to watch the movie, enjoy it, and then think, oh, well, who made this and what did he do? Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I would recommend go <laughs> go for the performance. I don't think this film or 
Lydia or anyone makes actually a good case for not liking Bach. Uh, check out Mahler if you have any time. Mahler's Fifth Symphony. I've been <laughs> that's been on my list for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Alex. Recommended for you is a Clark University podcast. All opinions expressed are those of the faculty participants. If you'd like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode of RFU, email us at rfu at clarku.edu. That's rfu at clarku.edu. Or you can leave a voicemail with your suggestion at 508-798-4355. The Recommended for You podcast is produced by Andrew Hart for Clark University. Music by Jimmy Jackson. RFU logo by AJ Simmons. Heavy metal bands with diacritic marks above their names. Goons and Roses. Bach Street Boys. Lead Zeppelin. Nirvunu. Block Sabath. Flirtword Merc. Pink Flood. The Reed Hoot Charlie Peepers. <laughs> I don't even know what you're saying anymore. The Tilking Heeds. <laughs> <laughs>